Good morning, everybody, and happy Friday to you. My name is Connor Collins. I'm a registered massage therapist and sports injury therapist, and welcome to the Concast, a podcast where we discuss all things health, wellness, and injuries in an attempt to better understand the human body. This is episode number 97, where I had the pleasure of interviewing Ashley Brzezicki. Ashley is a registered massage therapist and death doula practicing in Moncton, New Brunswick. Throughout this conversation, we tackled various topics relating to life, death, grief, reckoning with some of the existential questions of what it means to be human and so much more. This was a fascinating conversation. I hope that you sit back and enjoy the interview and get some value out of it. And we will see you in the next one. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Concast. This is the first episode in season uh, number three now. I believe this is episode number 97, so we're approaching 100 episodes, which is crazy to think. And for today's episode, to kick off season three, I've got another great interview with somebody that's been an integral part of my business as we've grown over the years in terms of bringing education to massage therapists in the world of concussion and building out some of our online platforms and education and blogging. She is the editor of my blog as well as an integral part of my courses. So I'd like to welcome my right-hand woman, Ashley Brzezicki, to the show. Good morning, Ashley. Such a Good formal, morning. Such a formal introduction. <laughs> it was very formal. <laughs> Um, and, um, we've, we've spoken a lot over the last couple of years and I'm excited to delve into the topic that you are immersing yourself in, which is a topic that frankly, isn't really discussed much in our field. Um, and for a lot of people isn't really discussed in general and probably, uh, as I've said to you many times, my biggest fears. So I'm hoping to learn a little bit from you today, but before we introduce the topic, Maybe just give a little bit of an introduction about yourself as long or as short as you want about how you got to where you're at today and then further to that, what got you into into today's topic and then maybe you can even introduce it for the listeners. Okay, um, where do I start with that? So I suppose where I would start is I come from an immigrant family. So I'm first generation Canadian. Um, I've taken the scenic route to my current profession. So I did have a previous career in archaeology, which is a, a, sub, a subset or a subcategory of uh, the larger field of anthropology, which does tie into uh, how I've come to do the kind of work that I do around life and death as a specific uh, topic of interest in healthcare. The reason why that's relevant, the immigrant component, is that when I was growing up, I haven't been exposed to the topic of death as much as perhaps other people have. 
people that have big families and are around uh, the aging members of their family, they get uh, a more intimate look at what that looks like to die and, and the process involved in it. I didn't have that experience. So I was very much sheltered living with just my, my two parents who are both reasonably healthy and, and my sister. There was a moment in high school where I was volunteering. I had a volunteer job at the Moncton Hospital. And part of that, I, I did various tasks as part of my volunteer work. But one of my favorite things to do was to do the book cart. So what had happened one day is I was volunteering. The context to this is we had a neighbor at the time, Mr. Fisher, who had recently been diagnosed with cancer and his, his de decline in that terminal illness was rather quick. And I remember the moment where my parents said that Mr. Fisher was now at the hospital and he probably wasn't going to, to be coming home. And I heard that and I processed it as, as well as I could with the tools that I had at the time, but my coping mechanism was to not think about it too much. And I'm rather ashamed to say that I honestly kind of forgot that he was at the hospital by that point in time until I was walking down the hallway with my book cart. And I had this moment where I looked over and I recognized him. And the last time that I had seen him was the many months before or the several months before and he looked completely different and the way that that memory had imprinted on my mind was it was it's a hospital so it was extremely the, the environment was extremely sterile um, the colors were bland you know I'm looking at this human being who I didn't recognize anymore because he had declined so much in his health that you could see the physical changes of, of his terminal diagnosis playing out. Only there was a stark contrast between the way that he looked the last time I'd seen him and the, and the way that he looked in that moment. And that left me completely awestruck, flood of emotions, it really left a lasting impression on me to the point where I had to look at myself. It made me really introspective. I had to look at myself and I had to look at how afraid I was of illness and of death and mortality, because up until that point, it wasn't something that I, if I hadn't had that experience, it wouldn't have been something that I would have wanted to look at. And the great failure of the way that I had interpreted it was a great failure of mine where seeing him in the state that he was in made me so afraid that I had sacrificed human connection for my own comfort. So I simply walked away. I don't know if he recognized me when he saw me. I don't know if he was to the point in his decline where he wasn't really receptive of, of that kind of information anymore. But I know for me, that was, that was a great failure on my part. That was the way that I had internalized it. So I didn't know what to do with that. I didn't tell anybody about it. Uh, it was something that lingered with me for a really long time. You know, fast forward to my uh, undergrad education where I became extremely interested in anthropology to come full circle. Anthropology is the scientific study of humankind. And you look at 
all kinds of uh, angles to what it means to be human in that in that field. So you look at behaviors, you look at culture. Really, the definition of culture is a shared or learned uh, behavior amongst a group of people. In learning anthropology and studying humankind and the way that we think and behave and the customs around certain things that we have in our cultures, that's when I started recognizing that it wasn't because I was failing at my humanity in a, in a way that uh, I couldn't look at death. It was because in our culture, we're culturally taught to turn away from it as a topic. And unfortunately, culture, cultural norm, norms are internalized as a truth uh, for people. So it's not, you're not necessarily aware that you're running a, a cultural program in the back of your mind. And I'll give you an example. So uh, for example, the way that our customs operate around breakfast foods, like we have a very ingrained understanding of what a breakfast food is in our culture, even though in a different culture, it would look entirely different. So in our culture, we have a, a perceived um, attitude that we carry around the topic of death uh, and dying, and it's not necessarily shared by another by another culture. So in a very almost unconscious way, we're unaware that we're running this model around our belief systems and what death and dying means. And so I wasn't, and as human beings, we tend to fear what we don't understand, right? So because I didn't understand death, I wasn't able to be present for Mr. Fisher when I saw him in the hospital that day. That's when I really started uh, noticing a shift within myself and my own understanding of the very real truth that if we don't look at death and everything that means for us, we can't really operate to our fullest extent, to our fullest uh, capacity as, as humans in life, because we just, we're running this unconscious program where we're, we're trained by our culture to be afraid of death. And I didn't want to be unconscious to that anymore. So I started looking at it uh, in greater detail. So you started looking at it in greater detail, obviously within the last couple of years. Was this something that you'd known as an RMT that you always wanted to get into a little bit further or you were sort of unaware that massage therapists, chiropractors, physical therapists, manual therapists in general, Reiki practitioners, what have you, are largely integrated, maybe not largely, but somewhat integrated into these complementary healthcare teams and end-of-life care, hospice care, et cetera? Or was that just something that you'd obviously had these things that had happened to you in the past that had kind of influenced you in such a, a strong way and then kind of came full circle and realized, oh, this is something I can now actually get into further and help a lot of people? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. So my, the majority of, I'm 33 now. So this experience with Mr. Fisher and, and my very, you know, the way that death kind of slapped me upside the head, that was a long time ago. I was in high school at the time and I'm 33. So basically since then, since I, I became aware of anthropology and, and the notion of us running kind of this unconscious program to ourselves about the way that we perceive of things within our culture, including death. That's when I really started doing the work. And obviously at that time, I wasn't uh, looking at massage therapy as, as a career path. I was looking at 
the field of anthropology as a career path. So I wasn't thinking at the time that I would ever be in a position where in a professional capacity, I would be able to help people kind of reckon with their own existential crises and look at death in a, in a bigger way. I was really mostly doing the work for myself because I didn't want to be afraid. And it wasn't until I left my career as an archaeologist, um, started exploring my new, my new field as a massage therapist and, and part of a you know, part of the healthcare team, part of allied health, that I started recognizing that, okay, the, the work that I had done in the past around my own questions, my own existential questions, my own fears around death might be able to help a lot of people because I've done the work and I've done the work over, you know, and the work, honestly, as a human being, like the work is never done. You're always going to uncover another layer of, of your own uh, discomfort with, with death and dying that, that you'll work on through the course of the rest of your life. But I've gotten to a place where I can separate my own biases around death, um, my own perspectives around death and what happens after death. I can hold those things separate from another person's experience on the topic. So I'm able to hold space for someone that's kind of struggling or wrestling with their own existential questions. And I find that that capability is lacking in, in healthcare systems very much. It, honestly, that, that's a direct result of, of the uh, industrialization of, of uh, medicine and the fact that we run this biomedical model in, in healthcare where we've reaped the benefits of that hand over fist. I mean, we've got so many curative treatments at this point. And, and in terms of the, the history of medicine, there is no other time that I'd prefer to be existing than, than right now, because we have all of these technological advancements. However, because we've become so focused on disease at the, the core of our, uh, the crux of our problems in, in health, uh, we've kind of lost touch with other components of what it means to be healthy all of the different realms of health as explored by human beings, including existential questions and uh, more challenging spiritual questions or emotional capacities that a person has when they're dealing with their own terminal illnesses. Those are things that in the biomedical model, it's not, doesn't have a lot of time for, it doesn't have a lot of patience for. Um, that tends to be, those, those questions tend to be, tend to be something that physicians, uh, other allied healthcare practitioners, if they haven't done their own work around that topic uh, to explore their own biases and their own discomforts with it, you tend to let the patient struggle with those questions without much emotional support as they're, they're dealing with their own mortality. And in that way, we perpetuate unnecessary suffering around the topic of death and dying within healthcare, because it's a topic that we don't like to look at. I'll speak for myself, a topic that is very uh, intimidating to, I've mentioned this to you a couple of times, just what, what do you say, right? What are some of the things that you say? How do you help people navigate these things? Everybody's so different, which I'm sure we'll get into, but I think that is also one of the, the cruxes of the issue you know, often if, if somebody's going through something or they've received a terminal diagnosis or a diagnosis that's just substantial in terms of disease, 
many people resort to some sort of generalized statement that you would see time and time again. And uh, I hope that we can unpack that a little bit more. One of the things that I'd talked to you about as well off the recording or off the podcast was, do we need some sort of like trigger warning for this episode and trying to dispel the stigma around what we're talking about? And I'd like you to maybe just elaborate on that a little bit more. And is, do you see a stigma around this topic? And then furthermore, do you have any general guidelines for maybe improving how we absorb the information around death, dying, hospice care, et cetera, as therapists or just as people? Yes. I'll start with the first question um, around there being a stigma or a shame around death and dying. There is stigma and shame around death and dying everywhere you look. It's everywhere you look. Death itself as a natural process is stigmatized. Even the way that we talk about death tends to be in, in the context of a fight that you've lost. So for example, if you've been diagnosed with cancer and, and your loved one passes away as a result of that disease process, we often talk about those people as though they have lost a battle, right? It's, it's pinned against this, you know, death is often thought as a thief, something that takes away from your life. But in reality, that is part and parcel of living right up until the very moment that you die, you are alive. And we tend to, we tend to perpetuate this extremely isolating experience for people that are at the end of their lives where they become isolated because people don't want to look at them or they have a hard time looking at them because of the way that they appear. Maybe they've uh, changed in their appearance, which was my, my response to seeing Mr. Fisher that day in the hospital. It was just difficult for me to look at. There is a stigmatization around that where, like I said, we, we fear what we don't understand. And in the past, death was very, historically speaking, death was very, very much something that uh, wasn't industrialized. The way that they built homes, for example, there used to be something, a, a part of a house called a, a coffin door, where the funeral practices and the, uh, the, the rituals and the ceremonies around death happened within your home with your loved ones around you. It was you and your loved ones that would prepare the body, uh, clothe the body, bathe it. And then when it came time for burial, you would take the coffin through the coffin door in the home that you've lived in, right? So there was a, a different kind of reverence for death back then, it wasn't something that was um, as as stigmatized or, or shameful as it is now. And it's just because we we don't have the chance the way that we used to, to interact with it. It's something that's largely considered that, you know, other professionals deal with, healthcare deals with it, the uh, funeral directors deal with it. It's not, it's not something that you're equipped to deal with because we just don't have a chance to look at it in the same way anymore. And where you don't look at things, that's where stigma um, and you're not educated in them. That's often where stigma and shame tends to perpetuate. It's, it's the fear of the unknown, not understanding something. 
there's shame and guilt for a bereaved family members whose loved one died by suicide. Oftentimes family members feel that they should have known that that was going to happen. That's a component. There is stigma and shame around ending a life sooner than nature would take it from you, having agency or, or medical access in your own death. There are suspicions around death. Many people, for example, they're afraid to spend too much time thinking or talking about their own mortality because they have this, this suspicion that they'll somehow invite it into their lives, even though, you know, that, that, that's a fear. That's a fear. That's, it's not truth. There's shame around caretakers looking after loved ones who are starting to struggle on the, under the weight of that responsibility. And they might start thinking to themselves that, you know, they need a break and maybe they would be better once the person passes away. And it's those kinds of thoughts that you're afraid to say out loud, but they're just part and parcel of your experience in, in doing the work and caretaking for someone that is a very normal thought that a lot of people experience. And it's only through talking about the way that we feel in our experiences and our thought process around death that people slowly notice that the, the shame around that, the cloud starts to, to lift away from that. And you're able to kind of cope with the way that you feel about the circumstances that you're in. But as long as we keep quiet about those subjects, there's, we're just going to perpetuate more suffering on the, around the topic than there needs to be. Okay, so in terms of, you know, just general guidelines on improving that stigma, I think you're suggesting that probably the first thing is that we attempt to open up a little bit more about this topic. Yeah. Would that be where we would start? Do you have any other kind of general suggestions? Yeah. So unfortunately... This is this is still very much a function of of our cultural perspectives around death and the fact that we're I do have to give us a little bit of credit. We are neurologically wired to fear death. Our literally the way that we're wired, our, our brains, our, our nervous systems, we are wired in a way that tries to protect us from death. So there is a component to this fear where it's it's you're not going to be able to get rid of it. Uh, that that is a necessary suffering. That is a that's something that's true to all of us. There, there's not really any one of us that isn't completely unafraid of death. However, there's these other forms of unnecessary suffering around death, like the shame and the stigma that we were talking about. And I do think that the earlier we can start talking about it, not just when you're, you know, finally at the end of your life, or you're surprised with a terminal diagnosis that you're, you're now starting to have to face these big existential questions or these scary topics around, around death. And in a sense, it's not too late. You're going to get through that process. Those are questions that do come up naturally at the end of a person's life. But what I'm propositioning is that we start thinking about those things much earlier in life so that we're able to maximize even just the quality of your own life. There is a direct correlation between you looking at your own mortality reckoning with it and being able to feel like you kind of suck the juice, squeeze the, (laughs) if life is a lemon and you're squeezing every bit of juice out of it that you possibly can, there's a correlation there between understanding your own mortality and making peace with it and being as comfortable as you can with it and being able to look at these 
otherwise very mundane moments in your life that become just a little bit more precious because you know that there is a finality to them. And it's not really until you're conscious, conscious to that process that, that you're able to really squeeze as much out of life as you possibly can. Yeah. I think that's just great advice in general. We've, you know, I know for myself, sometimes I find, and I think this is probably true for many people. You're, uh, we do a lot of waiting. Yes. We're waiting for, we're waiting for retirement. We're waiting for the right moment. We're waiting, whatever that is. And so we do spend a lot of time waiting. And then I think because we are maybe ruminating in the future, we're not being, and I've, you know, spoken on other podcasts about, about this with people that are well-versed in meditation and mindfulness and kind of being present in the moment and enjoying life for what it is. Because as you said, there is a finality to it, regardless of who you are. That's right. Kind of piggybacking off that a little bit and, and talking now about our field of manual therapy and how it's been integrated into hospice care and end of life care. We also talked a little bit off mic about, you know, physiological processes and death. And I, I asked you the question as a therapist, is that something that is necessary to understand the actual maybe thing that that person's going through, whether it be cancer, whether it be a byproduct of natural aging, is there something in that that allows us to offer better care or give us a better perspective or not really? Mm -hmm. As a clinician, if you're, if you're going to be working in the death care space, whether it's palliative or hospice or, or even just in understanding, even just from a very basic level, if you have loved ones that might be going through a terminal illness or, or they're at the end of their life, I, I believe, for me anyway, speaking for myself, if I understand the nuances of something, I tend to be better equipped to make my peace with with what's happening or to understand a specific process or where someone is within that process. So as a clinician, if you're working in that area, then I would say that you should, you should know what's going on with the physiology of death. If not for no other reason that you're, you're able to answer the questions of loved ones that might be in the room that are wondering, you know, why is their skin modeled like that? Why does their breath sound the way that it does? Why is their urine that color all of a sudden? You're able to, to give peace of mind through education if you know the physiology of death. And the thing is, you don't, you know, you don't have to understand it to the, to, to the degree of a physician, but there are certain physical changes uh, that you see when a person enters active dying where, you know, those things can be a little bit startling to a person that doesn't understand the, the death process. But if you know in advance, then it's not as jarring to your nervous system when you suddenly come face to face with those signs and symptoms. So, you know, in, in watching somebody decline, I do think that that that's, 
that's a worthwhile pursuit for you to understand what it looks like, what it smells like. Um, death does have a, a characteristic scent. If you don't know that before you enter a room, that could be something that's a little bit jarring for your system. It's all just feedback. It's all just pieces of information that you can integrate into your understanding of a, of a, of the process. It doesn't necessarily have to be something scary, although it will be if you're not prepared for it, I would postulate. So other than the physiological aspects, if like for myself, I've had one, not necessarily hospice care, but one end of life care individual that I was part of their care for in my entire career, which spans 15 years. So it's certainly not something that I'm well-versed in. I would say that was probably not only the most difficult thing that I've had to do as a clinician, but probably the most rewarding in the end for a variety of reasons. And to be frank, I was in no way prepared for that first time through my education in school and it was a lot of sort of learning as I went as a therapist if and this is something that we're getting asked more and more about and I'm sure we'll get into a little bit about that but it seems as though people are becoming a little bit more knowledgeable in the topic of helping people be comfortable as they're dying and so people are reaching out to maybe people like yourself or other people in the manual therapy community. And I guess, is there something that you can offer in terms of just like high level overview of things that we should know outside of, outside of just physiology and science, but just like a few little tips on maybe how to navigate this process or in terms of what are best practices because this isn't a special like obviously this is a special interest of yourself but you're also very well educated in it I know that you've taken a variety of death doula courses at the medical school level from a variety of very high level institutions all over North America so it's not like this is something that you're just kind of you've got a special interest in and you're doing your own reading you've been educated in this so I think it would be great if you could just offer you know, a few high level pieces um, that we might be able to take with us as therapists. Mm -hmm. The first thing that I would say is that if death is a triggering subject for you and you're not in control of your responses um, to the topic when you're working with someone who's, who's going through that process, there is possibility that you might not be able to hold space for that person in a way that is to their greatest benefit. So doing your own contemplative work around death and dying, you don't have to be perfect in, in your execution of that. There's of course going, there's going to be times where the, the case is hard you might have a particular affinity for the person who's undergoing the uh, the the diagnosis or or the the difficulty in wrapping their minds around their own mortality. Perhaps they remind you of a family member, and now you're suddenly thinking about the mortality of your own family members. The thing is that you can have all of those internal thoughts happening at the same time if you allow a little bit of space in between 
your nervous system responses to the topic as they're coming up for you. So this, this, this is a really important question and it has to do with, it has to do with mindfulness. There there's programs in healthcare at this point, one of the major ones, and that is something that I wanted to tie into. And I forgot to mention to you when you first brought up, um, when you first brought up mindfulness and meditation, there's uh, a program at McGill university where that is inherently part of the program where they're teaching doctors there to practice mindfulness, let them, they, they can hold space for, for their patients in a better way. Cause there's a difference between when you're mindful, there's more space between your emotional response to something and then a, which is kind of like a reflex and then having control over your response, having a, a minute to yourself where you understand where your triggers are coming from. That's the key component in doing this kind of work. So not allowing your own individual experience at that time to influence potential decisions for that person. That's it. I might be, as you said, triggered to say something based on a variety of circumstances. But if I'm not doing the work myself to be prepared for that particular circumstance, I might say something that is is not of benefit to that particular situation or scenario. Is not only of not of benefit, but could lead to incredible feelings of isolation, right? Like if, if, if you're dealing with someone who is undergoing the grief process and you tell that person how to feel, or you offer them unsolicited advice about how they can feel better, they're not going to interpret that in a positive way. They're not going to feel like you're listening. They're going to feel judged. They're going to feel like their grief is too much of a burden for you. And so your attempts to fix it while for you might be well-intentioned, but for them, they might look at your response to their grief and think to themselves, wow, they, they really can't handle this. They can't, they don't have space for my grief. They're trying to fix it for me. And it is a burden to them that I'm speaking of this. And so maybe next time I just won't say anything at all. And then that person becomes more and more isolated because they keep having these experiences with people that have their own hangups around death and grief and bereavement. And they don't really have a recourse for human connection. If everybody around them is running under this program of, of death is a scary thing. And all we can do is really just try to fix that for people, but, but you can't. You can't, you have to allow space for those people to, to have their experience, to let their feelings overcome them sometimes. Really, all you have to do is, is sit there and be present. And that's where the mindfulness component kicks in for healthcare practitioners, not only necessarily that, but other family members, if you, if you can do that. McGill University has a program where they where they practice a, a, what they call a whole person care model, where part of the program in medicine is for doctors to do this contemplative work, to consider these existential questions, the fact that there's many different angles to a person's health and well-being, including questions of spirituality and, and what that entails and, and how that interlaces with a, with a person's sense of well-being and their sense of of health and of mental clarity and perhaps for that person answers to greater questions about what life means and and that sort of thing that that is part of 
easing human suffering when it comes to looking at mortality. It's inextricable from it. Whether or not you have a strong religious practice, right? Because the existential questions of, of you know, I have a life, what does it mean? Yeah, that's still there regardless. It's always there. It's always there. Well, and I also think you bring up a good point about, you know, and I, I don't really know where this comes from, and it's certainly not everybody, but that, you know, the advice piece, I've sort of bared witness to that quite a bit and wanted to do it myself where it's like you want to give people advice, right? You want to help them. But I think you had mentioned to me the other day that that's just your own ego developing that sense that you actually you're trying to do that to sort of pacify yeah. your pacify yourself at the time and that's not necessarily going to be the best thing for that individual. The other thing that I've heard you say quite a bit, and you've already kind of mentioned it at the top of the podcast, which is until the moment that the person has passed away, they are living. And I wonder if you can expand on that point a little bit, and mm-hmm. maybe what that means to you and what that means to to us as therapists or people that are going to or currently are having somebody that's passing away. That that one's that one's a really tough one. We see that being played out over and over again in healthcare, where a person is dealing with a difficult diagnosis because we're plugged into that biomedical model where the crux of the issue of health is a disease. So we throw everything we can at a disease, and in offering that much energy to that specific topic, we kind of forget that there is a person, a whole person in front of this disease. It's not just about the disease that they're experiencing. It's also, you cannot lose sight of the person who is experiencing that disease. And that's often, unfortunately, what happens is we give so much focus to fixing a problem that may not be fixable. It might not be curative. And there's this, um, this isolating experience that you know, you can listen to a lot of an- anecdotes from people that have uh, reported and researched the way that they felt in laying in their laying in their bed, and their care team is around the corner, and you know the door is open, so the person can hear, and you can hear the the doctors speaking amongst themselves about the prognosis and the way that the disease is playing out, and you almost get to a place where. People are talking about you around you more frequently than they stop to talk to you. And that for a person is really isolating. It's interesting that when you consider, I don't, I remember the first time that I heard this turn of phrase uh, some forever ago now, when I was much younger, I think I was in university around the time that I was considering this, this question of Mr. Fisher and the way that I responded to it. Someone at some point said to me, the moment that you're born, you also, as a result of the fact that you were now alive, you technically start dying right away. And when you think of a, of a newborn baby and the fact that they've technically already started dying in a sense right away, you know, that the, t- the clock is now ticking, there is not a sense of urgency around that because they're, they're born. But towards the end of your life, 
it's really easy to look at a person and go, they're dying. And you forget that right up until the moment that they die, they're still alive. They're still a human and they still they still have feelings about what's going on. They, they deserve just as much humanity around themselves as they possibly can, can get in those moments where they're dealing with these difficult, difficult challenges and understanding their own mortality, but they're often very isolated. People don't want to have conversations about mortality with them. Loved ones often want to push that conversation aside because they get uncomfortable and they think, oh my gosh, like, the, the mental state of my loved one, they're now in a place where they're, they're talking about their own death out loud. And I don't want them to think that way because I don't want them to, to play into the disease process. I don't want them to play into the fact that the notion that if you talk about your death, you'll bring it on. People get so afraid of that, that they often deprive their loved ones of these incredibly healing conversations that would otherwise be able to take place, that the person then has to in some form or another kind of reckon within themselves because they, they lack the, the human connection that they need in, in bouncing ideas back and forth between people and, and looking at what it means to be human and what it me, really what it means to die. And if there's anything after life and, and those kinds of questions, people don't, people aren't well equipped in this culture to, to cope with those kinds of questions. It takes a, a, a person that has either done the contemplative work themselves or just someone that has a sensitivity to them that they're able to, to sit there and they're able to sit in discomfort and in the not knowing the answers and they're able to hold space for someone who wants to explore those questions. What do you say to the individual that is just like, I don't wanna do any of that. It's too scary don't want to Mm -hmm. think about it, don't want to talk about it. I hear everything that you've said. Still, my answer is I'm just not interested. And is that, is that that just, that's okay. Is the answer just okay? Yeah. That's okay. There, I mean, cause, cause again, it it goes back to uh, offering advice that a person's not willing to receive, right? It's, you can only do, you can only do what you can do and you can't force someone's hand through their desire and understanding. There's so many different reasons why someone might not be in a place where they want to look at those questions. And I think we have to find within ourselves a a level of patience where you might under having done the work myself, I understand that looking at those questions is, is uncomfortable, but it lends to you living a fuller, more wholehearted life. So I want that for other people, but I can't force it on them. They have to want that too. And they have to be willing to sit through those really agonizing questions around your own existential, your own existentialism and, and that sort of thing. Those are really difficult things to, to, to wrestle with, but you kind of have to get through them in order to understand the the bigger picture. Do you think that there are other cultures where the, these conversations are occurring on a more regular basis or the story around death is a little bit more comfortable for all parties involved to be a part of? And if so, where are they in the world? I mean, I guess 
we're obviously in North America, so I'm just talking about more westernized culture versus maybe some other cultures, or has the sort of westernization of the world in general started to just change the the story around death more permanently? Mm-hmm. There's this really, I'm thinking of something, a very specific scenario here, and it, it is intricately tied with um, public health and the way that the way that we deal with crises from a scientific basis, but also understanding that, you know, that, that there are people that are in the middle of experiencing these crises and, and cultures plug into that, plug into that experience very intimately. So um, what I'm thinking of is back in, this was a, several years ago now where there was the Ebola outbreak in Africa and the Ebola virus did come to other parts of the world, of course, but back then the major crisis was happening in, in Africa. And there were parts of West Africa where the cultural understanding and the beliefs surrounding death were so intimately linked with the spreading of that virus that you could not separate them apart. Um, There have been research projects and and articles that were published on this, looking at different policies that you can, that you have to not only enforce, but you have to find a softness to those very hard kind of evidence-based edges where it's, it's like you understand that if you that Ebola virus is transmitted through bodily fluids, you understand that you have to limit contact with a body that has died from Ebola because your main concern is not spreading this virus and and having it affect and, and kill other people. However, in West Africa, a lot of the cultures there, there are very specific burial practices that have to happen on the side of the loved ones that are that are dealing um, with a, a death in the family because their ability to this comes down to spirit spirituality and, and beliefs of what happens in the afterlife. The way that you prepare, the way that you interact with the body, it all sets up that soul, that soul's access to the spirit world. Right. So this is this is I'm largely doing this based from from memory and learning because I did take an African uh, ethnography course back in my undergrad and the cultural beliefs around death are are very different than the way that that we deal with death over here in the West, where your passage into the afterlife, you basically secure that in the burial practice. That is how it's done. And then all of a sudden you have teams of crisis intervention, you know, physicians that come in and their job is to make sure to get control of the Ebola virus and the spreading of it. So what they do is they take the freshly deceased body and they dispose of it or they cremate it right away. Meanwhile, you have just loads of people that are operating from this, this belief and this practice that the soul of my loved one is now eternally lost because we didn't dispose of the body in the proper way. And that is your belief. You cannot extricate that from, from that culture. So public health in that case had to find a way to educate the public on disease transmission 
at the same time that they were giving room for traditional medicine men and medicine women to do the job that they need to do in order for that person's soul to move on to the afterlife. So it's, it is, it's extremely culture. The way that we look at death and dying and the process involved and what happens afterwards is extremely dependent on our cultural context. Well, I would also imagine as well with Western culture becoming substantially more melting pot in nature where you're having, you know, immigration in countries and people are moving around the world more so than they ever have. You're going to have some of those cultures that have these more, like you said, traditional practices and beliefs that are now integrated into Westernized culture. And there's, there certainly has to be some challenges there when the biomedical system comes in and tries to kind of interplay itself into that family's experience. I guess one question that I do have is as a, as a therapist or someone that's again, going to be integrated into a healthcare team. And I know we've touched on this a couple of times because it's not like if somebody was to ask me to do hospice care, I'm going to be the primary caregiver. Again, you've sort of alluded to this before. There are going to be many people involved in this individual's care. You've mentioned this as well as there's also going to be family members that are involved actively on a day-to-day basis. And how as an individual can you best help those people that are also part of the process is that any different than supporting the individual that's going through it i would love to know your thoughts on that grief work is is an important concept to understand how grief happens for people, the signs of grief, what is normal grief, what it quote unquote normal grief. There are different distinctions in, in grief work now where people are talking about complicated grief. That is something that in my opinion should at that point, if you have complicated grief, it would be very beneficial for a person to uh, seek different forms of therapy. So if you're seeing a psychologist, that might be a good idea. Talk therapy would be indi- for me would be indicated in, in that process because grief is for the living. The person that has the terminal diagnosis, you know, they have to reckon with their own grief and their own sense of loss. And, you know, my life isn't going the way that I thought that it was going to go. And this is a surprise and why me and all those bigger questions. And so you do go through a, 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 a sense of loss of the kind of life that you thought you were going to have. But at one point that that ends and you're not suffering anymore, but the loved ones around that person, you know, that's a neurosis that we, the living have to deal with is this question of grief and, and what is, what is the kind of grief that is within the realm of normal? When should you start getting concerned about the way that you're grieving? How long is grief supposed to take? Is it this linear process, which is what we initially thought it was going to be, you know, the five stages of, of grief, uh, we were taught in early psychology classes that I took in university, that it was denial, anger, bargaining, uh, depression, and then acceptance. And the way that it was posited to us was very much, oh, this is a linear thing. Eventually you get to acceptance and you're going to be okay. But in reality, now we know that grief is cyclical. It comes and goes. You'll have triggers later in life where for whatever reason, something comes up and, 
and the sense of grief is fresh again, and you have to kind of deal with a different angle of the grief that you're experiencing. Understanding the way that grief works is helpful when you're speaking with the, the loved ones in the room that are going to be, that are already undergoing it in some form or another, or another, but will be passing through the rest of their lives, moving on, not moving on, but moving with their grief through the rest of their lives. Complicated grief is particularly challenging. Examples of complicated grief could be in situations that are just a little bit more uh, complex in terms of what the, the dying person might've meant for the, the, the trajectory of, of the living person's life. So for example, you would have complicated grief in a situation where, you know, maybe we'll say it's your father, your father's dying in your life as a kid, perhaps your father was abusive towards you. And then later you grew up, maintained some form of contact with your father, saw that with age, he softened, he worked on his own stuff. He figured some things out. Now you have your own kids and your father is being the kind of, the kind of father that you wish you had when you were growing up. That person is now working in that capacity as a grandfather. And then that person dies and you have all of these questions about, well, why couldn't that have been different when I was a kid? And these complex feelings over, you know, the suffering that you've endured under that person when you were a child, but now that person's gone and whether or not you're actually ever going, you'd probably, there's going to be questions that you never get the answers to because now that person's gone and you've got this complicated grief that you're dealing with. That's just an example. I mean, it obviously it takes many forms. Complicated grief can also be, you know, you're in love with your, your spouse, your spouse passes away after they've, uh, after they've passed away, you're going through their things. You discovered that they were cheating on you. That's complicated grief. And that often requires a, a different kind of counseling through that process because it can get very messy, very fast for people. And they don't, uh, they don't necessarily know how to untangle that, that knotted web of emotions without some sort of professional help. And I would imagine even timing and nature of death would, would lead to that, whether it would be something that's more abrupt and unexpected versus something that was a little bit more drawn out with a, you know, something that the family and the individuals that were involved are, are well aware of. I think that's really like the overarching theme of all of this is, is right, is how, and that's why I think a lot of people don't maybe want to bring it to the forefront and have conversations around it is it's like a very painful conversation, particularly after it's happened, there is so much potential grief for individuals and everybody will go through that process differently. I'm sure you've heard it as well, where, for example, like somebody passes away, person doesn't really take any time off work. Let's say they take a few days off work and then they go back to work. And then you get all of their friends and family being like, well, you have to grieve, right? You have to, you have to take like, it's usually like something arbitrary, right? Like you have to take two weeks off work to grieve, right? Mm -hmm. And then, it, and then it's like, oh, after that, those two weeks, I'm fine, right? This linear process mm -hmm. of like, okay, you've gone through stages four of depression. Then you're at the final stage of acceptance. Your two weeks is up move forward and what I'm hearing you say again that's not really our advice to give an individual and obviously there are circumstances where maybe lending a helping hand might be 
a little bit more necessary. Maybe the person's really, really struggling themselves and, and maybe not managing it in a way that's healthy for them. But you that's also right. have, but you also have to give people an opportunity to go through their own process and just be there as a support, as an extra leg on the stool, whatever is needed. And one of the things that I've also, you've said to me before is when your friends or family are going through something and you're trying to provide support, letting them know what you're able to provide them is yes. somewhat important rather than saying, you know, if you need anything, mm -hmm. right? Because then that person might say, well, I need, I do need something and I need this from you. And then you can't deliver because you haven't set out sort of boundaries for what your support is. And I'm certainly not suggesting you're setting out boundaries in, in a negative way, but you're allowing, maybe speak to that a little bit, because I know that you're, you're saying that when people are going through this, they're not really able to process a lot of the time some of the things that are going on in life, whether mm -hmm. that's I need to navigate um, estates, I need to navigate going back to work, I need to navigate taking time off work, I I still need to eat. I still need to, you know, make meals or do grocery shopping or all of these things. And a lot of that just becomes very overwhelming. So being able to say specific things to the individual, like I can, I can bring you a meal. I, I can do your laundry for you. Those are often really helpful things to say. Yes, that's, that's accurate. When you imagine a person you know, if a person is overwhelmed to the point that maybe their personal hygiene is starting to slip a little bit, um, they're too busy grieving, they don't have the energy for living life in exactly the same way that they used to, um, just for the looking at the their routine, it's not really, they've kind of taken a, a, an aside to their normal routine, and they're not really cooking for themselves and that sort of thing. So you've, you, what you have is a person that is overwhelmed to that degree. And then well-meaning individuals, well-meaning loved ones are around that person going, let me know if you need anything. Let me know if you need anything. And they're, they're repeating it over and over where that person might not necessarily know what they need until you make a recommendation. So it's unintended, but often what happens when you put the onus on the bereaved person to come up with an answer for the way in which you can help them is just an extra thing for them to, to try to solve for where maybe what might be easier for them is if you offer up a suggestion for something that you could do. And if it's something that the person then decides that they need, they can say, yes, can you please do that? That would be very helpful or no, actually, I don't need that right now, but you've got me thinking about this other thing. And, you know, that's something that I could really use right now, if you would be willing to provide that is just the the work of it is really to to try to make try to give the bereaved person enough space that they can have as much time as they need to grieve in one form or another so for example we know based on research that for the first i believe it's 6 to 8 weeks after someone has died it tends to be 6 to 8 weeks post-death that there is 
more support. People are making their support known for the person undergoing their grief. And then after about six or eight weeks, people start to slowly stop checking in. That is usually when a person starts feeling like, okay, this is when it happens. You know, I'm alone now and I'm, I'm, this is the part where I grieve the rest of this by myself and my life has to return to some form of quote unquote normalcy. And I'm going to have to carry on with this weight at my chest. So even if you're checking in after those eight weeks are up, um, that can, even just the person understanding that that you're still there, that you'd still recognize that, you know, their grief is ongoing and you don't have to constantly badger them to see if they need help, but certainly be aware that there is a timeline where for most people, six to eight weeks is the timeline that they have where, where they're getting regular support, people checking in regularly. And then after that, it really starts to drop off. So checking in after that would, would be beneficial for them as well. Well, I also think that's great advice for just grief in general, unrelated to death, right? Because there's grief everywhere for a variety of reasons, whether it's the ending of a relationship or the ending of a of a job or job prospect that you um, really wanted to to get and you didn't get. There's grief on a daily basis for a variety of circumstances. And I think from what I'm hearing, it's the same type of process, right? Try to be there and be su- supportive also as the person that's supporting try not to make it more complicated for the individual and give them another task but offer some basic help which can often be just what they need and they they might not even know that at the time but after the fact they're they're really you know thankful and happy about it in our field of of medicine and manual therapy particularly there's this push now towards evidence-based practice. And my question for you is as a therapist that's going to be involved in a support care team, how much do you think evidence plays a role in how you set out your particular systems or, or avenues of best practice as the therapist that's going into some of these circumstances because we see things like for example you know practices like maybe reiki that don't really have evidence to support them if you could maybe elaborate on what you think that means in the field of hospice care in general and how evidence might play a role in decision making and supporting all individuals involved. And it might not necessarily be from a, a manual therapy perspective per se, but I think you've alluded to this already in some of the, you know, responses of related to psychology and that type of thing. I'd love to know your thoughts. Mm-hmm. I love this question. I love this question because I'm, I'm very systems oriented. I, I like, I think also because of my training as an anthropologist, it kind of foundationally pivoted my worldview to look at systems more so than its individual gears or its individual running parts. I value the pursuit of truth. I value science. I love research, as you know. And so I do believe in this, in this curative uh, pursuit in, in biomedicine and 
asking these questions and, and sure, getting a little secular and getting, getting hyper-focused onto a specific problem and throwing all of your energy to try to, to solve for that problem, I, that is what has gotten us some of the groundbreaking technological advancements, advancements and treatments that we have for, for some diseases. However, it's that question again of actually what I come back to is this amazing quote by uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who was the, uh, the, she's passed on now, but she was a psychiatrist and worked with hospice and, and palliative care. And, and she was the one that developed the, the five stages of grief model. So she's got this incredible quote that I go back to time and time again, not even just in my interest at looking at palliative and hospice care, just looking at working with humans in healthcare, even just people that might have MSK issues going on and considering the biopsychosocial model that, that I try to work with in, in my own practice. So she said, the art of medicine has to take over when the science of medicine can no longer help. So there's this very humanitarian component to healthcare where, you know, sometimes our evidence-based practices might not solve for, for that. They might not solve for those bigger questions, um, these existential questions that I keep going back to. In my mind, in the way that I philosophize this and the way that I, I have my own kind of overview and own feelings towards this question, Curative medicine will only go so far. And then after it stops working, there's still work that we can do around easing a person's suffering. But those recourses tend to be more uh, existential or spiritual in nature, right? I am of the thought process that once, if I were sick and my recourses for hard science have now, we've run out of those options. I want to ease my suffering by engaging in treatment options or modalities that might even just psychologically make me feel better. If you're telling me that there's someone out there that you know of who, even if it's anecdotally, has had beneficial treatments or a positive experience with, for example, a Reiki practitioner, and there are things that I can glean from receiving that kind of, of treatment where, you know, say I have a big spiritual question on my mind. I don't think necessarily that if you have this lacking for a spiritual understanding that a evidence-based approach is necessarily going to make you feel better. I think a spiritual approach might make you feel better. If it's a spiritual question, it needs a spiritual answer. And I think that's where biomedicine tends to falter a little bit is we, we don't have that much of a patience for questions that we can't isolate the variables for and to try to solve for. We, we, we have this lack of appreciation for that kind of model in healthcare. But again, you have to always go back to the fact that you're not dealing with a disease, you're dealing with a human being. And that human being might have components to themselves where they might benefit largely from a treatment that might not have strong evidence behind it. But is that, does that matter? Does that matter to you at that point? If they can reap the benefit, if they can reap a reward from that kind of a treatment, who are you to say, don't embrace that. Don't explore that. Don't waste your money on that. That's something that we tend to hear a lot. I, as a massage therapist in, in clinical practice, 
I have been on the receiving end of my pay, my, um, my client or my patient coming in and saying, you know, I had intended to come to massage therapy much earlier, but my doctor didn't believe that I would benefit from it. You know, massage therapy is part of allied healthcare at this point. I'm not a Reiki practitioner. It seems that it would, that a, a doctor might have more flexibility in appreciating what massage therapy could do for their patient. But the way that sometimes it's presented to me from, from my clients is like, oh, this is, you know, I'm walking into this for the first time, my very first massage. And I already have this implanted notion that this isn't going to work because of the ego of another healthcare provider. Let, let a person explore, let a person explore what health and wellness means to them. And if you're going practitioner to practitioner, I do believe in the pursuit of truth. Like I said, engage with science for sure, but understand its limitations and maybe soften those hard edges around it. Be a little bit more flexible so that people can be a little bit more empowered in their pursuit of their own health and wellness. Right. Yeah. I like that answer. And I know that we're talking about this in the context of our experience as massage therapists. And I know that you're aware of teams of people now that are taking this very sort of evidence-based approach at large to help these people largely live a little bit more comfortably, not only just from whether it be palliative care settings like pain management, but also from a, a psychosocial perspective as well. Are there leaders in the field that you think are important resources that people could look to just in general for, for this topic, if they wanted to learn a little bit more? And if so, who are some people that you, you like, or you look to? Okay. Ooh, I like this question. The first person that comes to mind in, in a more modern context right now is BJ Miller. So he's got a really captivating story of his own where I'm going to piggyback off of his story and just try to try to catch engagement with this because it really is an incredible um, perspective that he offers on the topic of healthcare and and how to be of best support to your your patients. He was goofing off one day with his friends and got on top of a commuter train and was wearing a watch. And when he raised his arm, the the current running from the, the commuter train arced to his watch and passed through his body and it blew off three of the four of his limbs. And he spent months in a burn unit in terrible condition on the brink of death. And he, it left such an impression on him that he decided after that to become a palliative care doctor because of his experiences in that burn unit and looking at the way that healthcare as a system was integrating with his needs as a patient. Uh, and he very eloquently describes his experience in, in landing at the, uh, the hospital that he was airlifted to. And he remembers dancing in and out of consciousness, but he very clearly remembers a conversation that the, the physicians that were there to, to pick him up from the helipad, he remembers that they were placing bets on if he was going to survive or not. And he, he goes so far as saying that, you know, and as a daughter of a paramedic, I see that in healthcare, healthcare practitioners are human beings themselves, right? And, and they cope with difficult scenarios and traumas the best way that they can as well. So what he, what he says is, listen, like these doctors were 
yes, bedside manner was absolutely terrible, but perhaps that was their way of, of dealing with this incredibly difficult situation and seeing this young person with, with a kind of trauma that, that he had and seeing that day in and day out as a physician would be, would be really challenging. And for better or worse, that was the way that they were dealing with that hardship at the time. Was it beneficial to him? Absolutely freaking not. He should not have heard that conversation around the time that he was dealing with the thing that he was dealing with. And yet there was a nurse who was also there. And what she did was she, after these doctors had said what they said, she leaned in and she said, I'm here. And he said that that was the thing that he hung off of. It was like a bomb for him after what he had heard. And then to have someone turn around and go, forget that I'm here. You have my full attention. He is someone that I think people would really resonate with. So he's, he's one of the, the thought leaders in palliative care and what it means to be there for a patient completely. The other thing, if you want to go back, well, actually, let's go back to McGill. So McGill, the whole person care that they have programming around that is at the, at the leadership of Dr. I believe his name is Tom Hutchinson. And then if you want to go, that's in Canada. If you want to go further back in time, if you want to look at Elizabeth Kubler Ross and the way that the history of palliative care and the hospice, the modern hospice care movement is actually itself, it's really interesting because it, it piggybacked off of the civil rights movement. So people started advocating in different, different levels of culture and of society. They started advocating for different forms of rights. So patient rights came out of the civil rights movement. And there was this nurse by the name of Cicely Saunders, Dame Cicely Saunders from the UK. She started advocating in this 50s and 60s for patients' rights because she saw how much dismissal and, and how much of a breakdown of communication and the bedside manner that was severely lacking amongst the physicians in the UK. She saw how that was impacting the amount of suffering and isolation on behalf of her patients. And she started making noise about that and advocating about it. And at one point, someone said to her, listen, you're not going to be able to go as far as this as, you, as you'd like if you're operating from the capacity of a nurse. You're going to have to become one of them. And then you're going to have to make even more noise. And so she left her career as a nurse to become a doctor at the age of 33, became that doctor, advocated very hard for the patient rights movement. She's the founder of the modern hospice movement now. She set up a, a hospital in the UK called St. Christopher's. And it's thanks to her work that we now have the program at McGill University because one of the doctors that was working at McGill at the time saw what Dame Cicely Saunders was doing in the UK. He called her and he traveled to the UK to see how she had implemented that model of care and then came back to Canada and brought it to Canada. So it's all of this, when you think about how recent this shift in perspective has been, it's really only been since, since the, the fifties and sixties where it really started to, to happen. So it's all, it's all quite recent. And, and the history of it is really, it's really interesting. And it's really, it's really captivating. I've got all kinds of resources though. Um, BJ Miller, the thought leaders that I just mentioned, but I also have resources that resources like in the realm of even just the arts, poems, things that 
things that kind of help you navigate these questions of what it is to be, what it is to be human through the lens of mortality is that's a struggle that we all have as humans and the way that humans have come up to deal with those questions is through creativity and art. So there's all kinds of thought provoking pieces out there in the fine arts and in entertainment. There is an incredible monologue that I love very, very dearly that I saw in a Netflix show recently. And when I'm really having a hard time with these mundane silly little questions of, of life, daily life. Uh, and it just kind of seems like it's, it's all kind of pointless. I, I go back to that monologue because it does offer a lot of, uh, it offers a lot of, um, it's like a bomb. It's just soothing. It's soothing to intake art that has to deal with these existential things. Well, that might just parlay into how, people can find out more about your work. So if people are interested in maybe getting resources off of you, or I know that you're working on some things behind the scenes as well, that'll probably launch in the next year or two. That's right. If people are want to find out more about the great work that you're doing, where can they find you on social media? So my handle on Instagram is Ashley Brzezicki. It's my name, A-S-H-L-E-Y-B-R-Z-E-Z-I-C-K-I. I'm on LinkedIn as well. I do have a Twitter account. I'm not as active on that, but I will be. And then I am going to be, what I'd like to do with my social media account is make it a, a place where I'm sharing a lot of resources. So if there are if there are questions that people have, they'll be able to, to go to my page and to see the kinds of things that I've been able to uh, accumulate and put forward to kind of help people dealing, dealing with this subject matter. You can DM me. That's no problem. I'll answer, but I am going to be looking at making programming specific to massage therapists and finding a way where we can plug massage therapists into this larger collaborative care model. Because when you look at Every example that I've been able to find when I look at uh, hospice care programs, they list their interdisciplinary angles, their practitioners that they have there, and, and they list social workers and psychologists and chaplains and physiotherapists, not occupational therapists and primary care physicians. But I have yet to see a model where a massage therapist is plugged into that. And from my perspective, it would just be, I mean, we are perfectly positioned to help in, in that field. So I'm going to be looking at delivering content specific to massage therapists so that we can begin to weave ourselves into the larger healthcare model around palliative and hospice care. That's amazing. Can I give you an Easter egg for your listeners? If you guys are particularly interested in this, you can go to the, uh, the Netflix show that I was talking about, because I actually know exactly the, the season, the episode and the time of this monologue on, uh, on death and dying. And I think that for some people it would, it's just, it's really beautiful. It's a really beautiful note to end on. Sure. So it's a show called midnight mass. You don't have to look at the entire show. You can just look at this one specific monologue. It's season one, episode seven at minute 49, 49 minutes and 30 seconds. And it's a, about a five minute monologue. The reason why it speaks to me is because, and I think it would speak to a lot of people is because it blends very nicely what we know about science, philosophy, 
religion. It's all kind of tied into this really pivotal moment in the series where there's this one character who is actively dying because she's uh, term, she's wounded, she's fatally wounded. And the creator of this monologue, I'm sure that he's or she has spent a lot of time considering their own mortality because they beautifully incorporate that into into this scene where these larger questions are kind of explored and answered. So if you're looking for something soothing, that might give you some hope. <laughs> That's a good one. Okay, we'll leave it there. Well, I know that uh, this is a large topic for many people, but I, I think that you've done a, a great job at providing some insight. And I hope that the listeners today have found it valuable as always. That's it for today's episode, folks. I hope, uh, like I said, that you found some value in it. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you in the next one. Mm-hmm.